Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. Oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terra in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and thank you for once again taking some time out of your busy day to spend with us. My name is W.J. Sheehan, and I am the host of Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters and the author of a series of books by the same name. If you're interested in purchasing them, they are available at Amazon in paperback and ebook format. You can also acquire the Audible version in Volumes 2 through 6 at the current time at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So do take advantage of that, and you'll be helping us greatly with our show. And now, let's get ready to rumble! As I bring in my brother... And co-host, Kevin Sheehan. Kevin, how are you this morning? Hey, Bill. How are you doing? Fantastic. Fantastic. We just avoided another potential blizzard over here. And uh, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, it's uh, it's sunny here, but it's super windy. As they say down here, it's blowing the dog off the chain. <laughs> I can, I'm just visualizing the dog uh, flying around at the end of the chain. <laughs> uh, and, of course, people, no dogs were chained in the production of this podcast. That's right. <laughs> no just cho- an expression. <laughs> no dogs were chained and no choker collars were used. <laughs> Unbelievable. But we're doing okay. We're doing okay down here. Looking forward to spring coming. Tonight we uh, turn the clocks back or ahead, I should say. So that's a good sign. Yeah, well, no, that's great. I love this time of year, you know, and uh, that extra hour of light at the end of the day, you know, it's just stretching things out a little bit. You know, it's just so much better. Gives you more time to potentially see the hairy man, too. Yeah. <laughs> Without the use of night vision optics. <laughs> <laughs> I love that stuff. So what do you got the, in the barn, my brother? Oh, yeah. We're going back in time again. As you know, I love to go back in time. And this this uh, account uh, occurred in February of 1829. Wow. Way back. Yeah. How, and, let's um, see. How long ago is that now? A hundred and, uh, Jesus, almost like 180 years ago. Yeah, almost 200 years, right? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Let her rip. So, a while back, and it involves the hairy man, um, and it was it occurred 
down in the Okefenokee Swamp in southern Georgia. Wow. So super cool. Yeah. Um, and it the Okefenokee Swamp, we'll talk about for a minute for our uh, listeners not familiar with the swamp in the southeastern U.S. It's in uh, southeastern Georgia, near the border of Florida, um, and it's just northwest of Jacksonville, Florida, big NFL city. And it's a huge swamp. It's about 400,000 acres, or for our international uh, friends, about 1,600 square kilometers. Wow, that's a big chunk. You know, and I've seen uh, uh, visuals of people paddling around in there and moving around, and I don't know, you know, when I hear the word swamp, I'm kind of more thinking of marshland, but that's because of where I live. But these places are just like flooded woods with hanging moss and dark and shadowy. Yeah, some good Spanish moss hanging from the trees. And I've been down there to the swamp. I haven't like uh, paddled way into the swamp, but I've been down to the National Wildlife Refuge there and kind of snooped around a little bit. It's pretty cool. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, it's creepy looking. You know, I could see if you were in there uh, moving around and saw something, there'd be an extra uh, layer of creep applied to it. Well, you got a ton of gators swimming around there. Yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah. Always looking at you. Little prehistoric creatures <laughs> swimming around your canoe. Yeah, nice. Waiting for you to fall out. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the name Okefenokee is pretty cool. Uh, not only is it fun to say, but it comes from the Native American word meaning trembling earth. Wow. That's kind of a cool name, right? Yeah. I wonder where the, the uh, label came from relative to the swamp. Yeah. I, you know, don't don't know. Yeah. yeah it's just an oddity, um, you know. But these, this uh, account was well publicized back in the day. So uh, an article appeared first in the Milledgeville, Georgia Statesman uh, periodical back in the day in January 1829. And then in, on February 9th, 1829, the article was reprinted or republished by the Connecticut Sentinel. So basically about a month later, the story worked its way up the coast to Connecticut, to New England at the time. Wow, that's interesting. So super cool. Yeah. And um, the story was written as an apparent attack by a hairy giant in the Okefenokee Swamp. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. You know, these old stories too, Kev, we've said this before and I'll say it again a hundred times over. They are really ultra creepy because uh, there was so few people around back then that when these people experienced these things, you know, I can. There was probably an extra layer of fear uh, in that you were so isolated, and now the person's around this swamp. I mean, who are you going to call? You know, who, yeah, who's no, going to help no you doubt out about it? Especially back then. I mean, even today, if you were out in the middle of the swamp, I, uh, I'm, you know. I don't think you can even whip out your cell phone and make a call. Yeah. No towers down there. How do you tell them where you are? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm in the swamp, man. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. That's what they'll say. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out for gators. Yeah, fight hard. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this particular account occurred in the southern end of uh, the swamp, right down by the Florida state line. 
And, you know, we're going to talk about the account here, but I'm also going to start out talking about some of the legends of the Okefenokee Swamp because they kind of play into one another. Okay. And the first legend about um, these strange goings-on in the Okefenokee Swamp occurred in print in 1806. So going back even further time, in Jedediah Morse's book called Geography Made Easy. Kind of funny, you know, that this legend is in a geography book yeah. um, way well, back when. Yeah, and it brings me back to Teddy Roosevelt where he had the account of the uh, hairy man attacking his trapper friend uh, within the context of his book, you know. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Morse reported repeated a legend that a group of Indian hunters had gone into the swamp and become lost. When they were in desperate condition, a party of the most beautiful women they had ever seen actually came to their rescue. Okay, so they they thought they were going to die. They were completely lost, you know, probably all turned around and things like that. And then they run into this group of beautiful women who they then called the Daughters of the Sun. And uh, these women gave them uh, fruit and corn cakes and fresh water to to drink. Wow. So, you know, it sounds a little bit like these guys were probably hallucinating, right? You know, dehydrated, going crazy. I mean, it sure can be hot down on the Georgia-Florida border in the swamp, mm-hmm. right? But, but this is the legend that was published by Morse. And um, the... the uh, the, the tale, when he talks about it in his book, continued with the women actually warning the hunters to flee as fast as possible to their own land because their husbands, okay, these beautiful women's husbands, were fierce men and very cruel to strangers. And, you know, they say that these men of the swamp were said by the Creek Indians to be of gigantic stature and both cruel and warlike. Wow. So this is the origin of the legend of these giants of the swamp. And just to be clear, you know, they're, they're these, you know, huge, and we'll get into it a little bit more, huge, hairy creatures that are, uh, you know, pretty aggressive and cruel. Yeah, let me jump on something here for a second, Kev. You know, when I hear sure. this... When I hear about this group of uh, purported beautiful women coming to their aid with food and sustenance, it you know, I know it's easy to say that perhaps they were hallucinating, and perhaps they were. But part of me says this could have very well been a an angelic encounter uh, uh, of some form. And I'm going to tell you, uh, take a little sidetrack here that has nothing to do with Bigfoot, and give you an example. Uh, when the Virgin of Guadalupe appeared uh, to virtually the, what was the Mexican people at the time, a people in that region of the world, her garments and her appearance was such that it was very relative to the people who saw her then. There was symbology used uh, in the... Uh, the uh, stars and the coloration and the way that she appeared that really meant a lot to those indigenous people and would not have meant virtually anything to you or I uh, from our neck of the woods had we been there. 
I just okay. I just think it's interesting that this group of beautiful women, uh, anything that comes from heaven is beautiful. And so the fact that these this was identified in the legend as a group of beautiful women, and it wasn't like they were coming to tempt them or anything. They were coming. No, basic- it was a good. It was a kind mission, right? They were warning them too, exactly. saving them and warning them. Exactly. And this yeah. just reeks of something from heaven to me. But go on, go go ahead, yeah. go on. So, so Jedediah Morris published that story in 1806, and then going later on back to the original date of the account that I promised you in the winter of 1828 to 1829, uh, two men who lived on the edge of the swamp decided to explore as deeply into the swamp as they could, you know, possibly go. And uh, they brought a young boy with them. They don't mention if it was their son or, you know, someone else. Uh, and they went into the Okefenokee uh, over the course of two weeks and just kind of kept paddling deeper and deeper into the swamp. And when they got into what they thought was the very heart of the swamp, they made some startling uh, discovery. And it was basically some giant footprints. Oh, boy, here so, we go. Yeah, exactly. And th- 18, they measured them, and this is in the account, 18 inches long and 9 inches wide. And think of the immensity of this area, Kev, a two-week paddle, and they believe they're in the middle of the swamp. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, this is a huge place, this Okefenokee. Oh, yeah, and you got all, could you imagine the insects and the snakes, you know, let alone the gators? Yeah, well, there's no doubt. Uh, this is not a place where you, you want to be if you don't know what you're doing. Yep. Wow. Yep. So so these guys and the boy, they're in there. And uh, at that point, they'd seen enough, right? So they see these giant footprints clear as day. And uh, they ended their expedition and they retreated out of the swamp. And they reported what they saw to the newspapers, the local newspaper at the time. And basically, folks read about the story and it excited uh, a group of hunters who lived just south of the swamp across the Florida line at that time. And um, they went back into the swamp, you know, this hunting party with one of the members of the original party. So one of the original three that saw the footprints went with these guys from northern Florida back into the swamp to uh, try and see if they could see anything else. Wow. So now this was, I'm a little, I'm a little flip-flopped here. This was part of the legend or this was an investigation of the legend? So the legend was 1809. Right. And the the two men and the boy went into the swamp in 1829, the winter of 1829. They saw the footprints. Then they came out. Uh, They told the current newspaper, the local newspaper about it. And then um, they... Some folks from northern Florida that were hunters put a hunting party together and took one of the three with them and went back into the swamp. Okay, good, good. Yeah. So they they write about it and say that, you know, following some days, journeying into the heart of the swamp in a direction that their guide told them to go, which, you know, their guide was one of the three that originally went in. 
they came upon uh, some of the tracks that were originally discovered. Mm. So, you know, they, they, and then they started pursuing traces of the tracks and they came to a halt and determined to pitch a camp at that point and get some rest for the next day. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And this is the expedition that's described in detail in those newspaper reports that I talked about at the beginning. Okay. Very good. Yeah. And then, um, they were talking about the fact, and I don't know if this is a historical thing, but they say that the hunters were discharging their guns to reload them with fresh powder for the night. And after they discharged their guns, so I guess maybe they're carrying them, it's swampy, and then they fire them to, to put some fresh powder in them, right, I guess? Absolutely. I yeah, well, your yeah. powder gets wet. Yeah, okay. Um, and then, of course, right after they fired the guns, in the next minute, they say that he was in full view, advancing upon them with a terrible look and, uh, you know, ferocious uh, face. Hmm. And they, they, the hunters say that they gathered close together and presented their rifles. The huge being, nothing daunted, bounded upon his victims, and in the same time and instant received the contents of seven rifles that were reloaded. <laughs> received the contents. Yeah, you love this old English. I think it means they threw some lead at him. <laughs> Fire when ready! <laughs> the fight, however, did not end there. So they write that uh, he did not fall alone nor until he had glutted his wrath with the death of five of them, which he affected by wringing the head from the body. Nice. I mean, writhing yeah. <laughs> and exhausted, at length he fell with his hapless prey beneath his grasp. Jeez. So basically he ripped some of the hunting party's heads off. And then fell to the ground on top of a few of them while he was holding on to them. And this was with uh, seven musket balls presumably having hit him unless we had some really bad shots. Yeah, you figure at least six of the seven hit him. You got you got to <laughs> think so, you know. Good grief. Absolutely. You know, and people say that the Kentucky long rifle, I don't know what kind of guns these guys had. But uh, a lot of sharpshooters said that this Kentucky long rifle was the real deal. I mean, that that old weapon could put a, a lead ball on target at long range. Yeah, it's amazing in that time frame. Once they once they figured out like the intricacies of producing a rifled barrel. Um, made a big difference, right? Yeah. You know, and I know uh, out by us, uh, there's a Civil War fort, Fort Fisher, and they have some of these huge cannons that are left uh, from the Civil War with rifled barrels in the cannons. And when you look at how far they would fire these guns accurately, it's like, holy cow. Yeah, it really you know, is amazing. You know? Amazing for that era. You know, let me just take a side note here as we continue, Kev. This is kind of interesting. Uh, I was cutting some firewood uh, over in Selden many years ago. We had a dump truck back in the woods with our saws and uh, had an agreement with this guy to take down truckloads of trees for money to be cut up for firewood. So I had this big home light, 30-inch uh, bar saw or whatever it was. It was the biggest one they made. 
and I'm, I'm cutting through this big, thick tree that was felled, and I start to see some metal coming out, and I was like, oh, no. You know, I figure I hit a nail or, or a screw or something in the old tree, but it wasn't resisting me, and it wasn't making any noise. So believe it or not, I cut all the way through. Now I have these two halves, and I look in there, and I took my knife and popped out what I saw. It was a half of a lead musket ball. Mm. And it was like really in the center of a tree that was probably a couple of hundred years old. Wow. So I stood there in the woods, and I started thinking about how this musket ball came to be. Somebody must have been hunting you know, a couple of hundred years ago here on Long Island, and this bullet missed its mark or whatever and ended up in a little sapling, and the tree grew, and here I was, you know, 200 years later, <laughs> coming across it with a chainsaw. Pretty amazing, you know? That is absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget that. A true uh, needle in a haystack. Absolutely. Right? What are the odds? Yeah. But... Yeah, so back to this account. So they shot this creature. It's laying, dying on the ground. It killed, you know, uh, a good chunk of the hunting party. And this thing is laying on the ground, and it's uh, groaning and kind of roaring and howling, according to the account. And they took, like, a quick closer look at it, and it's this hair-covered beast. But get this, Bill. They measured it as 13 feet from head to toe. Wow. So a true giant. Yeah, that's a big you know. boy. Yeah. And the thing kept howling and groaning. So basically, the, the hunting party, what was left of the hunting party, left their dead and dying comrades there and fled out of the swamp. Because in the account, they talk about the fact that they were afraid that the groans and the cries of this giant uh, would res would uh, attract other giants to come to its aid oh there's no doubt that's that's not a good place to be no <laughs> when, no. The, when so the family we, arrives yeah and uh you know it's it's a it's an amazing story i mean that's basically the end of the account that was published in the periodicals back then and the newspaper correspondent who reported it you know um people of course asked him if uh, he thought it was true, and he said, hey, you know, I can tell you for sure that the people who live all around the Okefenokee Swamp clearly believe the story. Like, there's no doubters uh, present. And, uh, you know, apparently these these people disappeared, you know, and never made it back. <clears throat> you know, so if you think about it, going all the way back to 1829, published in some periodicals, this, this is definitely one of the earliest written accounts of, uh, you know, a Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Now, let me ask you something, Kevin, your opinion. Let's just say there was a 13-foot creature. What, yeah. do you, what do you think the arm length would be on a 13-foot Bigfoot? Just a, It's just a, obviously a, a guess. Boy, I, I would say probably six feet or something like that. Not arm span, just one arm, right? Just one arm length. Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I've had one account is just coming into my head now. I think we did it. If we didn't, we will do it. That guy in the tree stand bow hunting where he said that creature grabbed the heel of his boot and the stand coming up from behind him. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he claimed, I think he said 25 feet he set his stand at. 
Uh, I kind of think maybe he was off a little bit at that, but let's just say he had it at 20 feet, and then his heels were below the stand. Now, I don't know if 20 feet was the height or the top, the bottom, you know, whatever. But he had a pretty good stand height in the tree, and this thing was able to reach up and just grab the heel of his boot. Awesome. I mean, it would take a very tall creature with an extended arm to reach a guy in uh, a tree stand. I don't know. Is there like a standard height for guys who bow hunt with a tree stand? Um, You know, they're trying to get as much height as they can to see, but then balance the range, right? Because if if you're... um you know, if you think of it like the, if you think of it like a right triangle, right? Not to get all geometrical for you, but you know, you're shooting then down the hypotenuse of the triangle, which is longer than you know your straight line range. So I would say you probably know more than twenty feet high. Right, because now obviously some of these compound bows today are ridiculously accurate, but I know I look at my recurve bows. I really only have an effective range with them, maybe 50 feet. Uh, I mean, I'm guessing I've never really paced off my targets that I'm shooting at, but uh, I'd want to say maybe 50, 60 feet, 75 feet tops. Uh, I don't know if I'd really want to uh, be shooting at something beyond that because it may end up in a wound rather than a kill. Well, plus also, even with the compound bow, it's, you know, it's, you're not going to, you're likely not going to get more than one shot Well, that's before it. you startle the prey. Yeah, they're, they're so, off, you know, they're off yeah. and running. Even if you hit them and don't drop them, they're off and running. Yeah, exactly. You got to track them then. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting, you know, it's just interesting to look at it and, and, and think about it, you know, but a 13 foot beast on the ground. Yeah, yeah. And he says it had a size 18. Well, we don't know if it was that creature or another, but they measured it off to be 18 inches. 18 inches, 18 by 9. Yeah. So. And, I, you know, I've had uh, so many accounts. People say 24 inches, 10 feet at the toe, 10 inches at the toes. I mean, these are, like, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, these yeah are no, re- they're just gigantic. Yeah, really big um, you know, and so this goes all the way back to January 1829, and um, fantastic account. And then, of course, you know, I have to mention that even today, there's a lot of uh, uh, sightings of creatures like this in and around the Okefenokee. So, um, you know, it didn't, it wasn't a one-time thing. Um, they continue to see creatures, but this is certainly the oldest account that I could find from the Okefenokee. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's just unbelievable. And that, you know, once again, we go back to where could these things be that people aren't seeing them? Well, how about the Okefenokee Swamp? Oh, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> also, know. folks, you know, we t- we talk about it every week, Bill. Uh, the podcast is, you know, 50% us and 50% the folks that are uh, participating and writing in to us. And uh, so any of you down there, in and around the Okefenokee, you know, send us a note at BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com and let us know what you've seen and uh, and even, you know, what how this, uh, my account that I uh, retold here from the periodicals and from some of the other publications, you know, how it uh, syncs up with the local folklore down there. 
Yeah, and you recall, Kev, not too long ago, we did that account of the snake collector. Yes. And yes. Uh, that guy was in the uh, bayous of Louisiana. And, uh, you know, they had this thing out there snapping a gator's head while they were uh, snake collecting in the dark. Yeah. So there's stuff, there is stuff moving around out there, man. That's <laughs> like the home turf of the Rougarou, too. Exactly. So there's some creepy uh, activity going on down there. A lot of mysterious stuff, a lot of hoodoo and voodoo, too. But, yeah, getting to your point, Bill, I mean, on 400,000 acres of, you know, uninhabitable land, there's plenty of room there for a creature to hide out and not be seen. And that's just a swamp. Forget about what surrounds it as far as woodland. Yep. I mean, it's not like it's just a group of houses and then the swamp begins. I mean, there's like <laughs> nothing over there, you know. You don't want to buy a house right on it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cheap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, now, before we get going with this uh, cool account I have here today, uh, I have a winner in our uh -huh. last signed book contest. And uh, by the way, folks... Uh, the winner is Kenneth in Albany, Oregon. Kenneth, you are the winner of the latest uh, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods signed book contest. But now listen, folks. If I announce your name on air and you don't get back to me or you're not listening to the podcast to hear me announce your name and get back to me saying, Hey, Bill, thanks a lot. Here's my address. You lose. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not in this to make you the loser. I'm in this to give away. But uh, that's the rules. So you need to be listening to the following podcast when I announce it, uh, which may be one or two podcasts ahead of the contest, and then get back to me with your name and address. So, Kenny, glad you won. Kenneth, Albany, Oregon, make sure you get back to me at BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com and uh, give me your address, and I'll be sending a copy out to you. Congratulations, bro. Congratulations, Kenneth. Excellent, excellent. So here we have a very strange uh, account, and, you know, it, if you believe what these people are saying, they're shedding a different light on a phenomena that is associated with uh, purportedly Bigfoot being in the area. Now, they don't knock it down, but rather allow us a different view as to what's going on. And you're going to find out just what I'm talking about in a matter of minutes here. So listen in. This unusual and rather game-changing story was told to me by Frank Maselli, a landscape photographer and avid hiker from the Pacific Northwest. This is what Frank and his wife saw and heard when hiking through Lower Crabtree Meadows in July of 2017. So we're talking two years ago, two and a half years ago. As I told you when we first spoke, Bill, I am more or less an amateur photographer, specializing in landscape in, and panoramic pictures. I don't know when or how someone is touted to be a professional in my craft, 
but I have never applied that badge to myself. I have been at this now for well over 25 years, and many of my pictures are posted online at sites such as, and I won't mention the name, but he's got pictures at sites where you could download them or purchase them. My wife, Sandra, and I were just coming off some high ground, working our way down and through lower crab meadows. I had just set the tripod up with the view of the valley and trees within the meadows in the foreground and with Mount Russell rising up in the background. Having taken a few really nice shots from this perspective, the two of us continued to hike through the crab, as we call it. As we made our way through, we had decided to work our way up to a slightly higher position on one of the wooded hilltops to our left-hand side. We had hiked up through the trees to a slightly higher elevation where the perspective through the lens had changed dramatically. Once again, I set up the tripod to take a few more shots. The view from here was spectacular. I was standing alongside of the camera setting up for a panoramic when a loud knocking sound emanated through this valley. Sandra and I both looked at each other as if to say, what the heck was that? We began to scan the surrounding area in hopes of seeing whatever had made the sound. I should mention that we hadn't seen any large animals as we passed through the crab getting to this point where we found ourselves. I was using a telephoto camera lens, and Sandra was using a pair of field glasses to scan the area around us. After a few minutes, having heard nothing more, my wife said that she saw something dark pacing around in the timber on the slope to our right-hand side. I said to her, what do you mean pacing? She said to me that whatever she was looking at was standing on two legs and moving back and forth in a random manner within the trees. I immediately started scanning the area in which she was looking with my telephoto and bingo. There, before my eyes, was a large black Bigfoot on the slope. Just so you can visualize what I was seeing through the lens... The creature was about two inches tall in the lens at this distance. I had it in focus, but I couldn't see it or its movements with great clarity. It was pacing around exactly as my wife had said, flipping its arms left and right like a nervous man waiting for a late bus. It stayed in this one small area pacing around for maybe 10 minutes or so when suddenly it stopped its pacing and stood erect, facing the north with its head held high and brought its hands up to its mouth. We once again heard a loud, resonating knock. As soon as we heard the knocking sound, it lowered its arms and started pacing around as it had been doing before. Now, I must be up front with you. 
with what I am about to say. My wife and I had seen every Bigfoot show available to mankind ten times over. We had heard all of the tales and seen all of the people pounding on trees with logs and bats walking through the forest. The two of us in all of our outdoor adventures have seen and heard nothing for ourselves up until this afternoon of which I speak. On that afternoon, I believe we settled the score once and for all as far as wood knocks go. It's not a wood knock at all, but rather a large and loud vocalization being made by the creature internally. Having tried it for myself, I can make a cluck or a knock sound by putting my tongue to the roof of my mouth and moving my jaw downward. There's no way for me to describe the mechanics of what I'm talking about. And I have no way of no, uh, excuse me, uh, there's no way of describe, to describe the mechanics of what I am talking about to you, but I can do it. Now, whether or not they are doing it in the same way is something which you and I have no way of knowing. But what I saw and heard was evidence enough for me. There was nothing else present in that valley with us, and the sound occurred exactly when it had elevated its head and put its hands to the sides of its mouth. The creature was evidently very tall and broad. Exactly how big, I cannot say, because the distance was far too great, and we weren't going over there to say hello. We could most definitely make out the exceedingly long arm length, and its fur or hair was shiny and black. After about what must have been 20 minutes or so, it abruptly stopped its pacing and moved out of our sight, walking what I would say was some three or four hundred yards. I, as a photographer, have captured some moments in time that will never be duplicated again. I have shown the same stills to many others that you have seen, and they frankly don't believe it or have little or nothing to say about them. I guess it's just part of human nature. We have the believers and the non-believers. We have those who do and those who don't. As far as Sandra and myself are concerned, we are most definitely now counted among the believers. So there you have it. Super cool. A very pragmatic individual. You know, he's simply putting the pieces together as he sees them and says, what am I to say? Yeah, I also, I love the description of the creature walking around, moving its arms nervously. I mean, I'm sure it was the same for you, Bill, but as I'm listening to that account, I'm thinking of the Jim Mills footage of the Marble Mountain Bigfoot. You know, you're exactly right, Kev. I wasn't even thinking of that. Yeah, like that thing's pacing around on the the ridge line, and it's got its head down. It's like flopping its arms around, like it's upset or something like that, or anxious. You know, that's very strange. This this sounded exactly like that. You are a hundred and ten percent correct, and I hadn't thought about that, but that's exactly what that thing was doing on that ridge line when it realized they were in its camp. Yeah, the same kind of distance away, right? Because what, what did 
what did this gentleman say? He was looking through, you know, some type of scope, and it was appeared to be two inches tall or something like that. Yeah, well, he's looking through a telephoto camera lens, but at the, camera lens at okay. the distance in his eyepiece, it looked like a sure. two-inch tall creature. Sure. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, you're right. I could see this thing just, like, flinging its arms around, whatever they do that for. Maybe it's out of frustration, uh, anger, who knows. But it was also making this call. Like, maybe it was calling uh, some other creature and it wasn't responding and it was getting aggravated or something. Who knows? Very who knows, weird. right? Super cool, though. Yeah. And, and the fact that... I mean, literally, there you have it. He watched this thing. First, they heard a loud, resonating knocking sound. Then his wife scopes out this thing in the distance, and they have an opportunity to watch it as this happens yet again when it lifted its head and raised its hands in the, into its mouth. And then, boom, when that happened, they heard the cluck or the knock or whatever you want to call it, and then it lowered its arms and started, you know, acting like a crazy man again. So, awesome. Now, where did they say this took place, or did they say? Uh, you know, I used to have a note of the... Uh, hold on a second. Let me just go back here. They were in a place called Crab Meadows. Okay. Uh, I mean, we could do a Google search on that. And also, Mount Russell was in the background uh, when he began the uh the account and he okay. said he said that the two of them were actually hiking through the lower crab meadows okay so lower cra crab meadows lower crab meadows and uh mount russell uh and the beginning description was in the pacific northwest yeah yeah that's i'm going to i'm going to do a check and see how close that is to uh marble mountain when we get done recording. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, there's, there's a continuity here, you know, a synchronicity. Yeah, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes on uh, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Some, Very good. Awesome account. You know, and again, it's, it's through people uh, interacting with other people that aren't afraid to uh, step forward and, and make the case. Uh, and the ending, I thought it was also kind of neat that basically he, like a lot of other people, says, I don't know about you, but as for me and Sandra, we believe. Yep. So, you know, <laughs> there you go. It, very much like myself. Like, look, I don't care what you think, man. I know what I saw. You know, end, very good. end cool, of story. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So what have we got today, Kev? Yeah, we got a lot of mail, and uh, I also want to thank everyone that, thank again, everyone that participated in the contest. I mean, we got a ton of contest submissions. I mean, many, many more than we got before. And of course, we said the winner was uh, Kenneth uh, from Albany, Oregon. And uh, we're going to start out by reading part of what he sent in. Um, but also, Kenneth, just so you know, I I hadn't heard of this creature that you referenced called the Conser Lake Monster. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, but uh, I did put it in my uh, electronic cryptids file, so don't be surprised if you uh, if you don't hear me talking about it in one of the cryptids in the news segments. So. 
but uh, Kenneth writes in and he talked about the fact that that uh, this is a very popular lake. And uh, I'll just I'm going to read the first part. So he says in 1960, the lake was easily accessible, a favorite haunting ground of the community's youth and young lovers. So I guess kind of a lover's lane. Of course, back then, Millersburg was far smaller than the 708 citizens it claims today. And the town of Albany, south of the lake, was probably half its size or, or even smaller. Just little communities where neighbors talked to neighbors, where the old Salem Road existed. Not the constant drone of Interstate 5, which lies just to the east, just on the other side of the malodorous Albany paper mill. It was a time when news spread quickly. It all started the year before when the driver of a mint truck, so they were harvesting mint, uh, traveling in Millersburg, possibly near the lake where mint is still grown, was terrified by a tall white creature that resembled a gorilla. The white, hairy creature ran along at 35 miles per hour, alongside the driver's truck, peering into the cab. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then uh, he talks in great detail about uh, and gives the names of, let's see here, seven different individuals that saw this creature and gave a written account of it on uh, July 31st, 1960. So thank you, Kenneth. Super cool. Yeah, we super got cool story and super cool cryptid. We're going to do some more research on that in the future. And again, thank you to everybody that wrote in. Uh, we had about, I think, about 30 to 35 entrants in the contest with uh, uh, some of them with pretty detailed accounts of their favorite cryptid. Yeah, that is just freaking wicked cool, man. Kev, can you imagine... 35 miles an hour rolling along in a truck and this no. thing's pacing you <laughs> pacing you looking in the window like pull it over mac <laughs> oh it's terrifying <laughs> freaking unbelievable man and you know uh the the uh the fact that he mentioned you know news traveled fast I mean, you know, without the aid of, or with the aid of whatever they had available there, you know, one would tell another. And as people rode around or drove around, hey, did you hear what happened? Yeah. First generation social media. Yeah, awesome. Absolutely awesome. Very cool. All right. We'll go to some of our more traditional uh, uh uh, letters coming in here. So we'll start out over in the Emerald Isle ah. in Ireland. And uh, William in Ireland writes in and says, Hey, Bill, you should have been a comedian. What do you mean I, I should have been? <laughs> What's the matter with you? <laughs> I have caught upon every podcast and bought all of your books as well. Uh-huh. The Emerald Isle salutes you and Kevin. Oh, thanks for mentioning me too, William. <laughs> for a job well done. <laughs> Regards, William. All right, William. Yeah, don't insult me with I should have been a comedian. Why don't you wake up over there? <laughs> and, of course, you know, William might just be saying kind things because we're also Irish. <laughs> so, William, tell us tell us about some of the creatures you might see over in the Emerald Isle. 
I mean, I, Bill, as you know, I spent a lot of time over there, maybe seen some creatures, but probably because I was out too late in a pub. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we're going to go uh, to the Pacific Northwest, yeah. to Debbie in Seattle. Uh-huh. Debbie writes, I like your segment on strange and unusual cryptids. Who knows if they're real or just folklore? However, I stand with you, in particular regarding the older tales that Kevin digs up. You are right, Bill, in that people of yesteryear were more forthright when they spoke. We are most certainly missing sincerity in our dialogue in this day and age. Put the darn cell phones away, please. God bless. (laughs) (laughs) There you have it. I mean, how can you say it better than that? Well said, Debbie. But get that cell phone out and fire up the video (laughs) camera in case you see the hairy man. That's the only exception. Yeah, use your cell phone uh, with discretion. With discretion. Just keep it powered up, you know, so that you can get that camera going if you run into the hairy man or dog man or moth man or, you know. Yeah, and they say don't use your cell phone while driving, but... If you find a Bigfoot running next to you at 35 miles an hour, turn the film on. Fire it up. Maybe you'll get pulled (laughs) over. That's a good thing. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Awesome. You know, and I can see William over there in the Emerald Isle, you know, uh, sucking down a glass of uh, Guinness or something. You know, (laughs) No doubt. A glass of Guinness or even a glass of... Uh, Moifi's Irish Stout. <laughs> Super uh, cool. You know, it's amazing, Kim. We have uh, quite a few people uh, contacting us from that neck of the woods, you know, and it's kind of cool that, you know, these uh, men and women globally are tuning into this. I mean, it's just no, it's amazing. Absolutely awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're going to go to Northern Quebec. Ah. And they say, first, this is from Anne. Anne says, first of all, we love your show. You are the best. Uh I have had what I will say are several sightings while canoeing up here. In particular, in the early summer, all three were in the bushes by the edge of the lake, never seeing an entire body, flashes of dark brown, um, an arm, etc., Nothing else stands on two legs and has a hair-covered arm, except a human in a fur coat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. Keep the fire stoked. No, she's right. Yeah. I mean, again, I won't say. And it was probably a bear. <laughs> you you exploring up in northern Quebec, uh, you probably don't know the difference between a bear and some other <laughs> cryptid. Oh, my goodness. But there you have it, just like simple truths. You know, she's, how many times have I heard about a canoeist or somebody on the fringes of a lake seeing something on the shore? Uh, you know, moving around in the bushes, you know, looking out, ducking back in. Uh, you know, a lake is a tremendous food source. and Oh, yeah. Anything that's growing is going to be really growing next to the lake. No doubt about it. Yep. So, so that's a good place to be snooping around if you're looking for some, uh, you know. And a super rural place up there in northern Quebec. You know, even the moose, uh, they go in the shallows and eat those grasses that grow in the bottom of the lake. Oh, yeah. I've seen them walking around in the marsh. Yeah. So this 
this abundance, a plethora of uh, creatures that fo- uh, feed and re- uh, uh, rely on these lakes and uh, tributaries and estuaries uh, for food and drink. Though you're spot on. I mean, when we were up in Alaska this summer and uh, I was watching the brown bears up close and personal, they were, you know, not only were they eating the salmon that were running, um, but they would eat this uh, green uh, uh, plant that ran along the river. And I told you, Bill, I ate some too. And apparently it's very protein rich. Uh, tastes a little bit, you know, like uh, arugula or something like that that you'd put on your salad. And they just go from salmon to chomping on the uh, the local salad along the side of the river. So that's same an, thing. It's an incredible uh, menu that they're being offered. You know what I mean? Oh, if yeah. you think about it, they've got their proteins, they've got their omega-3s, you know, then they head to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> Out of it's my way. To, it's tough to get 13 feet tall. You got to eat well. <laughs> All right, Bill, and our last letter comes from one of my favorite states here in the United States, from Daniel in Wyoming. Ah. And uh, Daniel writes, my dad used to tell a story when we were small in the 70s of some type of large creature harassing him on horseback in the Rockies when hunting. He passed before I was 12, but I wonder now if what was harassing him was in fact a Bigfoot. I always thought it was a ghost story or something of the sort. Great show. Wow. Well, At first, when I read this letter, I thought he was saying that the creature was on horseback. <laughs> I think he's talking about his dad was on horseback. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think that's the way it went. But if you <laughs> We th- haven't had any accounts yet of <laughs> Bigfoot riding on horseback. <laughs> tribal tribal Bigfoots on horseback. That would be an intimidating army. Woo! Whoa! <laughs> Here they come! <laughs> Watch out! Awesome! Oh my goodness! Yeah, you know. All and, right. Well, and, that's it for this week, Bill. Some great accounts. Some great viewer mail. Great contest winner. Um, just want to encourage everybody out there again. Thank you for writing in. Wow, the amount of mail we had this week is fantastic. And also, please right now on your favorite podcaster, uh, podcast player, um, go in there and give us five stars. It makes a big difference. It uh, draws more viewers to the program, and it. It allows us to uh, continue to improve on the podcast each week. Awesome. And as we part our ways for yet the end of another podcast, may I remind you all, always carry more guns than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. <laughs> <laughs>